You have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing, so he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stopped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and they placed a reed stick in his hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice, and they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. The sign was fashioned above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, 
one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their hands in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others. They scoffed. But he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe in him. He trusted God, and so let God rescue him. Now, if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, this man truly was the Son of God. Today our passion narrative begins with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on, on a donkey. A donkey was a symbol of, of humility. It was a symbol of peace. Zechariah refers to that, and that's what Matthew quotes in his telling of this entry into Jerusalem, that the king would come in to Jerusalem, the king of Israel, the, the, the Messiah, the one who would reign over all, would come in on a donkey because he would come in to enter in, to usher in a reign of peace. That was an image in contrast to what many people thought, was that the king, the Messiah, would rather come in on a horse, which was a symbol for a military image. And so many were expecting the Messiah to come on a horse. Jesus enters in on a donkey. Jesus came with a different mission than many had expected the Messiah to bring in. As he is now in Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus teaches and preaches throughout this period of time 
that he is there. That is what comprises most of his ministry there, are little sermonettes and parables and teachings. And Jesus teaches us about a lot of things on this final visit. He actually is questioned by the, the religious authorities, and believe it or not, he's, he's questioned about the two things we're not supposed to talk about, death and taxes, right? <laughs> we're, we're supposed to stay away from those subjects. But no, the religious authorities, they, they ask him about death, about the resurrection, and they ask him about taxes. Who should we pay our taxes to? To God or to, to Caesar? Well, Jesus continues to teach, and he talks to them about the most important commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you shall love your neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. And then he grieves over Jerusalem, even weeps. A woman in Bethany anoints him with an expensive ointment, an act, and a commodity that is reserved usually just for the burial of the dead. He celebrates Passover with his disciples. And on that same night, he institutes with them the Lord's Supper. He goes out to the Mount of Olives where he prays all night long. He is arrested, he is betrayed, and he is put on trial. And then eventually, he is crucified. And from the cross, he says these words, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus, on the cross, all alone, isolated. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Maybe not on the cross, but we certainly are getting a sense of what it means to be isolated. And in this isolation, Jesus does something remarkable. He doesn't hide himself. He doesn't try to protect himself. On the other hand, he takes on, not his sins, even though he's human, he has not sinned. He takes on the sins of the world. He takes on my sins, and he takes on your sins. As we shelter in place, as we experience isolation in our lives, let us remember that we are not alone. Jesus has gone this pathway before us, and what is unique and different is that he has taken this road to the very end. He has gone to the end of the road for us. So as we experience loneliness, as we experience fear and anxiety, as we reflect upon our sins, let us turn to Jesus who is with us, the one who on the cross pays it all for us. In the book of Elijah, I'm sorry, in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, is the story of Elijah. And there's some wonderful stories in 
in this book about Elijah. There's one point where King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the queen of Israel, have completely turned against God. They are now worshiping the gods of Baal. And there's this big uh, fight between the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Holy One of Israel. And the God of Israel loses almost all of his prophets. The, God, or the prophets of Baal come and, and they, they slaughter them all. And then there's this uh, amazing event that happens on Mount Carmel where, where the gods of Baal try to show how faithful their God is by making a sacrifice which doesn't work. And then God sends Elijah to make a sacrifice, and he does. He puts this altar together, puts a sacrifice on the altar, and then God says, now water it all down. And so he pours water all over it. And then he prays to God, and there's this bolt of lightning that comes and hits the altar and consumes the sacrifice. Elijah's sacrifice was accepted by God. The other sacrifices were not, which angers the prophets of Baal to no end. Now they chase after Elijah, and their goal is to kill him. Finally, Elijah has had enough. He has wandered on his own, the only prophet left, he believes. And as he wanders, he prays to God that God would just end his life for him. Let me read these two verses in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. Do those words sound familiar for us? He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died before me. When he had no more energy left, when he had no hope left, nothing, an angel of the Lord touched him and told him to get up and take something to eat. The angels of God then provided bread and water for him. And Elijah lay down to sleep. During this time of recovery, Elijah and God talk. In that same chapter, a little bit later on in verse 9, we hear this conversation between Elijah and God. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars and have killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain, 
It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the still sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Even when Elijah had given up all hope, God was present. Even in the time of greatest loss, God is present. And for Elijah, God was present in the still, small voice, that gentle whisper. Hosanna, 
Isolation is bad enough, but what do, what do we do to make sense of the amount of, of illness and death that occurs around us? I mean, it is just beyond imagination in some respects. I mean, part of my week this past week and next week is learning new funeral protocols. I mean, how bizarre is that? How awful is that? Many of you continue to be encountered either through work colleagues or family or friends who question God because of this. You know, why would God cause this to happen? I can't believe in a God that would do this. And so we have talked about this a few weeks ago because it's important for us to know, I think, that this is not God especially on Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday. This is not who God is. God is not a vindictive God. God is not a militaristic God who goes in to, to conquer the world, even if he takes half of the world with him. That's not God. A friend of Patty's and mine I shared with you a few weeks ago had this profound uh, vision in a time of worship. And in this vision, Jesus speaks to her and is terrified as he speaks to her, saying, this is not me. This is not God. Why would Jesus be terrified to share that word? I think what we are experiencing is that there is much suffering around this world because of this pandemic. And the suffering is not over for us. Personally, globally, as a nation. You see, God's sent his son, Jesus, to the earth to be completely human. And so when Jesus is terrified, he is identifying with us. He is identifying with our horror, with our fears, and with our anxieties. I mean, some sin we cause to have happen, and that causes suffering. It is like when you tell a lie, when you cheat, when you steal, when you covet, when when we have greed, those are times that we experience um, sin because of our own actions. You know, much like the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Abel was the shepherd, Cain was the farmer. They both took their first fruits of gifts to God and offered them to God. And God was pleased with Abel's but not with Cain's. So instead of Cain working on his own life, trying to figure out how he could have a better relationship with God, what does he do? He acts out. He goes and he kills his brother. Some sin 
some evil, some suffering we cause ourselves. Other sin, other evil, other suffering comes indirectly from the corruption of creation. And I had referenced Genesis 3 a few weeks ago. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, not only are humans uh, fallible and sinful, but the world now, the universe also is working in a broken way. We are not made whole anymore because of our actions. The voice of God is terrified because he experiences every feeling that we experience. And we shouldn't be surprised. Paul writes about this in Philippians. In the Philippian hymn, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, though he was God, speaking of Christ Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The voice of God is terrified because we are terrified. When I was in college, I remember in my religion class reading a book called Night by Elie Wiesel. And it's a haunting book. It's a book uh, that Elie Wiesel wrote, in a sense, his own memoir of a, being a, a little child growing up in the concentration camp, Birkenau. And there was one day in this story that he writes about when they were all summoned into the public sphere, the courtyard. And in the middle of the courtyard, they had three gallows where they were going to hang three of the members of the concentration camp. Of the three, one was a little boy, probably 12 or 13 years of age. He had been charged by the SS as one who was trying to overthrow the Nazi government. Can you imagine a 13-year-old being able to do that? So the three of them are standing on the chairs, and the executioner, he comes and he knocks the chairs out of the two. But he can't knock the, little, the chair out from underneath the little boy. And so the SS sends one of their members to go and do it, and he knocks the chair out from the little boy. The two men die fairly quickly. And it's pretty graphic in the book. But the little boy, it says, hangs between life and death for 30 minutes because he's so little and has so little weight. He struggles for every breath until he finally dies. And there is a gentleman standing behind Ellie who yells out, where is God? Where is God now? And Ellie Wazell writes that in the back of his voice and back of his head is the voice of God 
that says this. There is God. There is God hanging from those gallows. You see, as Christians, we interpret that story from the eyes of Jesus. That little boy was a Christ figure for us. He didn't deserve to die. None of those six million Jews deserved to die. But they did. And he did. And Christ did. There are going to be a lot of people in our communities, in our state, in our nation, in our world, in our world who are going to need our help. And they're going to be crying out, where is God? And we can try to tell them, but I don't know if they're going to want to listen. But perhaps we can show them by our love, by our actions, God is not the cause of suffering. James reminds us that in opposition, God is the author of good. In, uh, in the book of James, in the first chapter, we read about the author of good. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. Or we could say, don't say that God is doing this evil. Do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, our own sin, we could say, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. God is the author of good. God did not come to destroy the world. He came to save it. And if you need to have any kind of proof of that, just look to the cross.